Well, thank you, friends. It's a matter of great honor, privilege, and joy to be here with you. And uh, I know and I have seen that this is a gathering of inspired people, in spite of the age, in spite of the weather, in spite of the city. There is a purpose in your eyes, in your mind, Therefore, I feel very privileged to say something before. Now, I was uh, asked to speak on the challenges that India faces in education and what has to be done with the education system in India now so that India can live up to not just the expectations of others, but India can itself be what it has been denied to be for the last several hundred years. That it has to be a truly mentally free nation. And all this comes <coughs> with education. It cannot come without. Now, you are all well-informed people, so there is no reason for me to uh, start with an introduction about the problems and things. I would come straight to the point as to what has been wrong with the Indian education system and what is to be set right. Now, I have a reputation of being a little blunt in my speeches and you can see my dozens of uh, videos on the internet because I don't think we have enough time to just beat about the bush. If we want to do something, then let's identify the hurdles, let's identify the problems, put our minds to how to get over them and start something. Now, the Indian education system, unfortunately, continues to be what it was envisaged to be in 1832 by Lord Macaulay. There is no need for me to speak about that because we are all very familiar with it. It has not changed. It could have changed with independence, but something very strange, not unexpected, but strange happened. The strange thing that happened was that instead of Sardar Patel, who was nominated to be the next prime minister by the Congress Working Committee unanimously, it was proposed by Mahatma Gandhi that Jawaharlal Nehru should. Now, that could not have made a big difference if it was somebody other than Jawaharlal But because it was Jawaharlal Nehru, it made a radical difference. And the difference it made was total inaction. 
the Jawaharlal went to England at the age of 11. He went to, I think he went to Harrow. Then he went to Cambridge. Came back as a <coughs> lawyer and joined practical politics. Uh, he was a brilliant person. He spoke wonderful prose in English. But he did not speak any single Indian language properly. Now I am saying this because I have seen Jawaharlal from the age of six. I was taken to Jawaharlal's home when I was six year old because that was the time when he was entertaining any child who had his birthday. So I went on my birthday and then because I lived in Delhi and uh, Jawaharlal was projecting himself as the Chacha Nehru of the children. So almost every year I would meet him. That is my school and a bevy of children. And I saw the whole era. And I saw him maybe two or three times a year as, as, a, as a growing child till he passed away in 1964. Now I'm saying all this because <clears throat> I want to convince you that I'm not saying something which I have read from journals or because I have any political inclinations. I'm talking just from my experience, what I have known and seen right from childhood. Now the education system was decided by Jawaharlal <coughs> in the debates that happened in the Constituent Assembly <coughs> and it was decided and made into law in 1950. What is it that went wrong in 1950? There is not much point in talking about what Macaulay did, because Macaulay did what he should have done. After all, he was a British imperialist. He wanted uh, to execute the white man's burden to bring the natives into light. So if he brought in all that education, British education, with total contempt for whatever was the Indian uh, list of texts, then nobody should blame him. I don't blame him. But the transition which should have taken place in 1950 did not take place in the vision for education. It did not take place entirely and primarily because of Jawaharlal Nehru. You see, let's be very clear. If I don't know something, if I don't know even the ABC of it, then I'll not know the beauty of it, the depth of it, the thoughtfulness of it. So if Jawaharlal Nehru didn't know a single Indian you know, I, I heard him in, in 1957 for one hour 
I was 11 years old, <coughs> an uncle of mine who used to live, he's dead now, he used to live in Denver. He moved here in 1954. He was visiting, so he took me. He also wanted to hear Jawaharlal. And I, we both stood there in Ramlila ground and we heard Jawaharlal speak in his broken pigeon Hindi for one hour. There were thousands of people. He was a leader, undoubtedly. Nobody should contest that. However, as an academic, I know what you lose when you don't know a language of a country because then you never know the country. If you don't know the language, you can never know that culture. You can never know that people. You can never communicate. And this was exactly Jawaharlal's problem. So what did he do with the education system? <coughs> if you are familiar with the Indian Constitution, the Indian Constitution has a very problematic article. Article 28 and the first section of that article is that in no institution which is either partially or fully supported by the state there can be any religious instruction. This is Article 28. There is section 2, section 3, which are not relevant so much to what we are going to discuss today. Now what happened in India, right from the beginning, right from 1950, was that a very peculiar interpretation of this word instruction, religious instruction, was put into practice. So what did religious instruction mean then? Religious instruction meant that any text which has vaguely to do with religion, Hindu religion, Islamic religion, uh, Sikh religion, those were the three denominations, Christian and Parsi, could not be part of instruction from, let us say, primary class till PhD. So neither in school, nor in a college, nor in a research institute. Which means that the Indian education system would not teach any of the so-called religious texts. Now it's very easy to identify the Bible as a religious text, the quran e majid as a religious text, maybe one for, for, for the Buddhist, you'll again have the same problem as to which text you know. But when it comes to so-called Hinduism, then almost everything because it is part of the ancient tradition becomes a religious text, not just the Bhagavad Gita. 
so you cannot teach the Vedas, you cannot teach the Upanishads, you cannot teach the Shastras, you cannot teach the Kafyas, you cannot teach the Maramayana, you cannot teach the Mahabharata. And any sensible man would ask, then what can you teach? And the upholder of the Indian constitution said, nothing, no religion. We will not teach obliquely any text in the school or in the college or in the research department which has something to do with it. This is section 28, that's uh, article 28, section 1. Now, then article 29 creates a category of minorities. And it says that minorities, in order to protect their language and culture, can manage their own institutions or can make efforts. And in Article 30, you give them a right to have their institutions and teach whatever they want, or teach religion, teach religious instruction. So Article 30 then becomes a total contradiction of Article 28.1, right? So, the Christians get to manage their schools, make their own syllabus, do the teaching, what and where, nobody can challenge them. I went to a well-known Christian college in Delhi called St. Stephen's College, and in the morning, they had uh, service. Well, it was beneficial to me because then I could, you know, hear certain passages of the Bible and I'm not ignorant of the Bible. But then, everybody else in that college is ignorant of any other religious text except the Bible. So you see, this is what the combination of Article 28 and Article 30 has come. Now, if you look at it, not just from the religious point of view, because I'm not making a plea for discrimination against Hindus. I'm talking about the consequence. That what do you end up doing? You throw out of the window all the texts of a civilization. Because you call them religious texts. See, this is, the, this is the first mischief you do. You, for instance, let's take an example from the West. There is now a commonly accepted idea that the so-called Western civilization begins with the Greek text. So the first text of the Western world, which means Europe, United States, part of South America, the first text would be the Iliad, right, by Homer. The second text would be the Odyssey. Now, for the Greeks, they were very religious texts. 
because they were the text of their forefathers, they were the text of their heroes, they were the text in which the conduct of right and wrong and what is to be done, who is to be worshipped, who are the gods and how do the gods behave, all that is there for the Greeks. But in Europe, they are called classical texts. Classical texts. And they are also called, not now so much, but earlier when the Europeans started studying them, text of the heathens. That the Greeks were great, that the Greeks were fine, that the Greeks were brilliant, the Greeks had Homer, the Greeks were classic, but they were heathens and they were non-Christians. However, they became part of the education syllabus. So till mid-20th century, any university worth its name would not give a BA degree unless you know, you knew Greek and Latin, at least elementary Greek and Latin. In the 19th century, you had to write in Greek and Latin in, a, in order to get a tripos from Cambridge. So you see, the Christian West and the West which also gave birth to socialism and Fabianism, which was the the doctrine of the day in Cambridge when Jawaharlal Nehru went to Cambridge. He was a failure in Cambridge. There was a double policy. That the text which are valuable to us will be part of our educational system, although they are not religious text, but they would be part of the education. Whereas in India, the classical texts would not be part of education because they were religious texts. You understand? So the Greek heathen text would be acceptable, but the Hindu text would not be acceptable. Now this is the prejudice which Jawaharlal carried. And in 1950, what he did was he combined this prejudice with another prejudice. The other prejudice was that we shall not have religious texts, but we will make a concession to the minority, largely the Muslim minority, because they were the largest in number, and because this was soon after uh, partition of the country, so that they could preserve their culture. Now, any sensible man would say that culture is not dependent upon the number of people studying it. If five people want to study of a denomination, then they would like to study the same cultural things as 500 people. You see? So why do you create this whole category of and then why do you allow them to study primarily religious texts and give them the freedom to do the texts? So that's how in India, in the education system, we have a category of so-called religious schools which are maintained by various religious denominations. 
and the bulk of them are the madrasas. And then there are some religious schools maintained by Hindus, Sikhs, Jains, etc., which claim minority status under Article 30. And you have, on the other hand, the public school. You have the syllabus given by the state, the, the state, the country, the parliament, in which all the classical texts from Rig Veda are eliminated. So what happens then is that when somebody does a BA, even today, he has no knowledge of any religious texts. Now, the so-called Hindu texts, they become religious texts whether they are religious texts or not. See, this is the biggest problem. If you were to say that there will be five Hindu religious texts which will not be part of education system because we don't want religious texts, let us say the four Vedas and Bhagavad Gita, these five, then you have another 25, like Kalidasa, then you can have other texts like uh, Dharma Shastras, or you can have hundreds and hundreds of texts written in Sanskrit. But if a text is written in Sanskrit, therefore it becomes a Hindu text and a religious text, then what you have is a very perverse system of defining what text you should read and what text you should not read. So Jawaharlal was a victim of three things. Number one is absolute ignorance about anything Indian, any Indian text or any Indian language. First hand, I'm not talking of learning through English, because learning through English is a very different affair. You know, we can learn all kinds of things through English. Number two, of the concession that he made on grounds of religion, the minority, so-called minority. And number three, that because he was a Fabian, so he was against any kind of religious instruction. Now that thing continued during his time. And uh, it did the great disaster, which it did, because we had then from, let us say, 1950, 60, mid-60s, till the time I went to college in 1964, full one generation of people who were totally uninformed in any Indian text whatsoever. Right? The only older text people would be acquainted would be the text they may have had read at their home. You see, if the, if the, if the father introduced the text, like my father introduced uh, several uh, texts to me, like the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, etc., at an early age. So unless your cultural heritage, your cultural text came to you from home, you were devoid of it. And then, there was also the problem of 
employability what kind of job are you going to so till till almost till the period of uh, so called period of liberalization under the indian socialist state you would seek a job with the government and the government job would be through the medium of english so all you had to know was good english and english saw to it that you under these articles the education you don't study in 1971 something else happens we had a war with pakistan the birth of bangladesh this is the time when who was it uh, president nixon yeah yeah who sent the sixth fleet into the bay of bengal and threatened and then russia helped india and uh, you know the history bangladesh was born in 1972 two things happened i get a job at delhi university i start teaching but somebody else gets a very important job that is professor nurul hasan he gets the job of the education minister and under the soviet influence he starts an unashamed naked marxizing marxification of the indian education system <clears throat> now i saw i have seen this whole thing with my eyes you see how professor arish sharma and dn chha and various other people were brought in forcibly appointed into delhi university and then a little later JNU uh, in 1967 was established and they never taught any single indian text they offered me a job in 1976 at JNU there used to be at the linguistic department one professor daswani who whenever he would make, meet me you know he would say kake athe aaya you know boy young boy come over to JNU and i said but to do what you teach linguistics which has nothing to do with india because you don't teach sanskrit in jnu you teach linguistics which is purely european linguistics and thank you i i have read it on my own i don't have to you know change my job now this system continued and slowly and slowly it acquired a great hostility towards whatever was india and not just sanskrit texts but all the texts in all indian languages all the you know 28 official and couple dozen other unofficial languages see it's a matter of attitude when you teach a student that only this is worthwhile then the student would read the worthwhile he'll never investigate so the education system to this day continues to be really deprived of its own texts now you know every civilization is made by the texts that it has preserved you see we can very vaguely talk about what is western civilization or what is eastern civilization but if you want to point your finger at something specific 
then you go to the text. So for the whole Christian world, the cardinal text is the Bible. For the whole Islamic world, the cardinal text is Quran and Majid. Other things come later, Hadith and this and that. But that's the fundamental text. Civilizations are defined by these things. And as we saw in the 30, uh, 14th century onwards in Europe, Europe came out of the clutches of Christianity by reading the text of the Greeks and the Romans. There would have been no renaissance, no rethinking about what is this world if they did not acquaint themselves with the Greek and the Roman text, painting, art, poetry, sculpture, drama. A whole new civilization was born, the civilization of Renaissance. Of course, they did what they did in their own interest. It was not in India's interest or China's interest because they colonized and ravaged and plundered and they didn't take perhaps what was sensible from the Greeks, you see. They took the worst of the uh, elements of the Greek civilization, but they made a civilization of their own. It was on the basis of texts. Now, that was denied to India from 1950 onwards. And for that, India has to blame nobody else except herself and her leaders and her educators, her professors, her members of parliament, her legislators. Not Lord Macaulay anymore because it's been 70 years since we can make our own system. Now where do you go from here? What do you do? How do you bring these texts back into education? What are the methods of doing it? And what are the possible systems of doing it? So, the first thing that you have to do is you have to look at texts, not as texts of a religion, but texts as heritage, texts as knowledge. You see, so long as you divide the text, as a religious text and you say that this can be taught and this cannot be taught you will never teach any text in India but when you say that look these are the texts which were <coughs> composed in India or even brought into India like the Bible and the Quran and several other texts but these are the two major ones and because there are people who follow these texts, so these texts have to be part of the education system. Unless you radically alter your approach. Now, this also means something very different. This means if you want to study these texts, then you have to study and know the languages in which these texts are written. You are not going to uh, kind of rent it out 
to somebody else to translate these texts or to bring life to me. I mean, that is what we have done. We read the Rig Veda in English, or at, at some stage later on in some Indian language, we read the Gita. How many of us read it in Sanskrit? Not only the texts, but all the arts and the sciences which are part of those texts. All the sociology, all the social systems, the social systems which are very clear, like yesterday we went into Manusmriti and it was an eye-opener for the people who came as to what is the content of Manusmriti. Today you just think that Manusmriti is a caste system and lack of education for women. But when we read the Kama Shastra yesterday, then we find clear injunctions that women should be educated soon after marriage, their education should be continued. It's there in black and white, but you would not read it. Why? Because you don't know the language. And also you don't think that this text is worth reading. You think of Kama Shastra as just gymnastics for sexual postures. You don't see the whole vision of it. Now, this exactly is the problem with the Indian education system. In simple language, if the Greek and the Roman texts created a new civilization for the Christian West, and created a powerful, strong civilization and a civilization which gave birth to the natural sciences and modern technology. See, that, that, was the, that was the crux of it. Then why can India not read its own text? We don't have to go to somebody else's text. Like the Europeans had to go to the Greek and the Roman texts. And then to declare that Greece and Rome is our intellectual forefather. This is a hoax. There's very little in Greek and Roman culture which is Christian or which is uh, European. As a matter of fact, Christianity is responsible for destroying the ancient culture of Greece and Rome. Who are the people who destroyed Rome? were the people who destroyed Greece? Christians. They are the ones who destroyed everything. They broke the temples, they vandalized, they killed the philosophers at a particular time. And it is the same text which they burned, which they vandalized, the art which they plundered in 4th and 5th and 6th century till 11th century. It's the same art which gave them a new civilization when they started studying it from 14th century on. How could you have Shakespeare if there was no Christopher Marlowe before him and Ben Jonson who had read Aeschylus and uh, Euripides, the Greek playwrights. So the whole civilization came into this is the problem. India has 
not been able to revive its self-culture because it is still to this day divorced from its texts and more than divorce it has developed a hatred for it because when Marxism came Marxism promoted in the academia the stereotype that whatever is in Sanskrit is Hindu, bourgeois, reactionary, anti-Marxist and it should be kept at bay. Feudal. Hence, huh? Feudal. Feudal. And so far from studying it, you should not even mention it. You should not even talk about it. And if somebody ever happened to study, then he should be punished. Hmm. Now, I am not exaggerating. I tell you, I am not exaggerating because I was punished in Delhi University for 40 years because I knew Sanskrit. I was punished. People did not accept that I should be the head of the English department and a full professor. They saw to it that I should not be. My only fault was, and I used to tell them, look, I also know Greek. They say, yes, yes, that's okay. I mean, I was invited to a half a dozen Greek departments in North America, Berkeley and Toronto and others to talk about my understanding of uh, Greek uh, theater. And I'm an acknowledged uh, scholar of ancient Greek drama by the Greeks. I am an awardee of the Onassis Senior Fellowship. But, but in India, they saw to it that I do not get an opportunity to teach from the top something like 50 or 60 students. Now, this is exactly the problem. And this problem cannot be solved unless we radically alter our faith in what is good and proper. You see, it's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of <coughs> acquaintance. If you are not acquainted with the text, if you are not acquainted with what has happened, then you live in absolute ignorance. And the consequence is this, that today the people who sell their books about what is, for instance, uh, the Dharma Shastras or certain philosophical texts are the ideologists of Chicago and Pennsylvania and Harvard. So you see, they have captured the whole the whole knowledge system and they are the ones who are dishing it out to JNU and Ashoka University and Delhi University they would not read my book they would not read my book on Greek theater although my book is read all over the world and it is in all libraries of America but in Delhi University it is not prescribed See the kind of hostility. When my book has been printed five times, 
You go to any library, maybe even this library has a copy. But the animosity is so severe and this is suicide. And we have to think seriously as to how we have to come out. As I said, one thing is not to look upon it according to religious division. Secondly, we have to start teaching. You know, we have to simply strike down this Article 28.1, which says no religious instruction. It should be there would be religious instruction because religion is not something which dehumanizes. And we should give religious instruction in schools talking about the major aspects of every faith which is lived in India. And we should talk about it and we should educate our children. And similarly, we should accept all the other texts which have been produced in various Indian languages in different parts of the country. And they should become part of the study. Then you really know what is your history? And what is your history as surviving in the present time? How to think about a classical text or a modern text or an art form? So if you don't know what is your art form, then you get somebody like our friend T.M. Krishna who comes around and says that South Indian music is Tamil Brahmin music. All that. It was the Brahmins who revived uh, North Indian music in the 20th century, when half the music, more than half the musicians in North Indians are Muslims. <laughs> My teacher in Rudraveena was Asad Ali Khan, a Muslim. But University of Chicago brings over T.M. Krishna, and T.M. Krishna, you know, Gives, gives this whole theory about how the evil Brahmins do not teach Carnatic music to non-Brahmins or how the South in, the Maharashtrians have capitalized <coughs> over Khayal Gaiki and modern uh, Hindustani music. Something which is simply factually not true. This is the neo-colonization that India is now. India again has fallen into that same point when the minutes for education were written by Macaulay. Because when you are totally ignorant, then you can easily be made subservient to somebody who knows a little and who claims authority and who claims the legitimacy. And that is what the American universities and professors claim and they advise, they advise the Indian government, the vice chancellor of Houston University, what's her name, uh, this lady, I forget her name, you know, uh, she's the vice chancellor, yes. she's, she's appointed uh, by the UGC as an advisor. 
and she has not been able to establish a proper department of Indian studies in Houston. Does anybody remember her? I, I forget the name. Yeah. She's a Punjabi lady. Uh, no, she's a Maheshwari lady. It's just that I'm forgetting her name. Everything else about her I remember. Uh, the look at the look at the problem. Renu Khandor. Renu Renu So she is an advisor. But I have been visiting Houston for past ten uh, years, and I have been visiting the department, you know, university, giving lectures and making inquiries that are you able to have a department of Indian studies? And they say yes, if somebody gives us money, we'll have it. But then whom will you appoint? Well, we'll ask so and so. Now this is the neo-colonial problem of Indian education. It has to change. It is not a political problem. It is not a Hindutvavadi problem. It is not Hindutva which is standing in way. Because if Hindutva was standing in way, then Hindutva would have performed in the last four and a half years and Modi would have changed the education system. No, it cannot change. Because the kind of vision that is needed to change is not a political vision. It is a proper cultural understanding rooted in the self-respect of the people. And people who know, who know hands-on, you see, people who have worked in India, who belong to India, and who know the textual traditions of India, along of course with the textual traditions of the West as well. But they should know what is the real thing to be introduced and taught, and then how to be taught. It's <coughs> going to be different when you teach it at, let us say, primary level, at high, then at middle level, then at high school level, then at university level, then at PhD level. It's all going to be different methodology, different method, different strategies. And in different regions of India, also it has to adjust to various places. But India is caught up in a lot of jargon, jargon of Aryan versus Dravidian, so they don't want to learn any North Indian language in Tamil Nadu. They, love, they have lost, I mean, Tamil Nadu has academically just gone to dogs. It's, it's one of the richest place in India as far as learning is concerned. Still, there's so much, so much of good scholarships, art, poetry, you name it, which survives there. But all that is under a submerged, under a political hegemony the Dravidianist party. So a very big change is needed and I think that uh, those of you who are here has to have to speak out about it in a different fashion. Not as friends of BJP or friends of Congress or friends of this but 
as people who can look upon the whole history of India dispassionately. It has to be that. Because the ways of education are not mysterious. And they are in some respects culture specific, but in many respects they are universal. Education is given about the texts which are traditional texts, texts that belong to the nation, belong to the people, and it is given in a rational manner. It is given through a rigorous methodology, and these methodologies are not that different world over. They're pretty much the same. So it is not as if uh, there is a rocket science to it. And India has systems. India still has remarkable systems of education because the culture of India is still being supported by whatever has survived through the traditional systems. It, there's a system of teaching the language I'm not talking of teaching of language in modern Indian universities, but I'm talking of languages which are taught through the traditional pundits. I learned how to study Sanskrit texts from traditional Sanskrit pundits in the traditional manner. And I know what how a text is to be read, something which uh, just, let us say, somebody who has been just to Oxford or Delhi University or JNU would simply not know because you're not familiar with that methodology. If you want to know what are the performing arts of India, then you can't learn them in a modern conservatory here. You have to learn it from the teacher, the gurus who make you practice that art and teach you right in front of you. I did 10 years of sitar under Pandit Uma Shankar Mishra, disciple of Pandit Ravi Shankar, sitting face to face. That's the only way. And that's the methodology of teaching one to one. And that is a traditional Indian methodology. And it has no place in the university system. So there is a lot of schizophrenia. There is a lot of colonization. And there is now the possibility of a neo-colonization. With these words, I thank you for listening to me. And Before we take a break, can you say a little about your book? I think you've forgotten. You yes, yes. Pass it around. Okay. Uh, so I, and then we will have a question session. Yes. But uh, thank you for reminding me. This is a book which is now old by modern standards. It's 2008. Uh, this is about. It is called India, a cultural decline or revival. So it's a question mark which I put. In this, I take up the questions of education and art. Primarily, the whole book has a series of essays. And the book also follows a different pattern of sociological analysis. It does not follow the standard Western pattern of sociology in terms of ethnography, you know, people belonging to different ethnic groups, etc. 
it follows a different pattern and it's very inexpensive you can order it from Amazon so I guess we would have now before we do that um, just for, for that uh, we have uh, another distinguished member of our community Dr. Sarada Punasanti the Sapna organization She's uh, not only an author, um, she's in Psychology stuff, so I should say, uh, propagating to Anamacharya's treatments and things like that, and she's uh, doing this for more than 30 years in this country. I'm so going to uh, go to University also to do this. So we have a traditional person here. Uh, we would like to welcome you, Acharya Rajput, <laughs> by one Vedic hymn. And a Sanskrit shloka. She'll the one line meaning of this is the jiva through yajna gets the anubhuti. Gets anubhuti. Anubhuti. Yeah. Saman. Yes. Ruk through yajas becomes saman. Saman. And that is the welcome to you, sir. Before that, I just want to give because Professor is talking about Sanskrit. Did you want to say now? Just one more. One, one more. Of course. Let's just You are here as the white hairy. Welcome to